0: So we begin a new section in the farewell discourse with verse 15. It's as if Jesus has taken a breath, and he's now going to build upon what he said up to this point in his communication with his disciples. Back in verses 2, 3, and then 7 of this chapter, he began using a new formula for our understanding of our life with him and in him. And that formula is if and then. Here are those verses. Verse 2, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? This, if then, is all about him, but it's for us. If it were not so, then why would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And then the second if, then, is once again all about him. If I go, then I will come back for you, and we will be together in that place that I have prepared. And then verse 7, he tells them, If you had known me, you would have also known my father. This if, then, is all about us. If. There's that prerequisite for the then that he compels us to know, to understand. And how many of us don't get, don't comprehend, or don't even really care that we don't understand the then promise that he's given to us, the promise of his return, the promise of knowing the Father, the promise that he's gone to prepare a place for us? Perhaps now we can begin to understand why our walk with the Lord is, I don't know, just so lacking but not really lacking because he has given us everything that we need to know in him. But who here doesn't find that their walk is anemic, bland, powerless, and often meaningless? And then we just shrug our shoulders and go back to our video games back to our self-fulfilling activities that occupy our minds and our hearts, back to the Internet or the cable TV show that we love to binge watch. If, then, if you had known me, you would have known the Father. Well, do we know Him? Do we know Him? Do we really know Him? Because if we do, then we would also know the Father. It's been said that the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And the retrieving of the life given us in Christ, by Christ, begins with admission. If you ever are diagnosed with cancer, there's a process that has to happen. You can't forego any part of that process in being cured. The same is true for grasping the truth of the life that we've been given by Christ, in Christ. And just like with that cancer analogy, the first thing that has to happen is there has to be an acknowledgement that you have cancer. The same is true here. Just as with that cancer analogy, You are first made aware that something is wrong. Something is wrong. In our case, the revelation must be found in the fact that we lack holiness, power, intimacy in our walk with the Lord. Then comes the diagnosis. The reason for these things is because your knowledge of the Son is lacking, that because of this truth, your knowledge of the Father is even more lacking. And now comes the campaign to overcome this cancer. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Here's another of those if-then statements. But here there's been a shift that's occurred. Because back in verse 7, Jesus said, if you knew him. And here he says, if you love me. There's a huge difference between knowing and loving. We know lots of things, but we don't love most of the things that we know. And there's a difference between just knowing and loving. And there's been an even greater shift of focus by Jesus as well. Because this is the first time that Jesus has spoken of the effects of these men and us loving him. Matter of fact, this is the first time he's actually spoken of us loving him at all. Up until this point, he has spoken of the love between him and the Father. In chapter 3, we're told that the Father loves the Son and has given him everything, verse 35. In chapter 5, we're told the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, verse 20. In chapter 10, he tells us, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. But when we read verse 15 of our text today, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We gloss over it. Or we think that it's not an imperative. Or we think that it's impossible for us to obey the commandments of Christ. We just can't do this. It's impossible. How could he lay such an impossible burden on us? But have you ever stopped to consider that we are never told in Scripture, Anywhere up to this point that the Son loves the Father. We will be told that in a few verses from now, verse 31, when he says, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. But that is given to us to solidify the reason why we should obey, why we should submit to the prescribed treatment. And think back to all the events that have transpired up to this point in the life of Christ. The turning water to wine, the healing of the lame, the paralyzed, the leprous, the denial of self that Jesus so seemingly did. It would be completely heretical to think that he did those things because he was God. That would be denying him the fullness of his humanity which would then nullify the propitiation that was made in his suffering, the suffering that began at his incarnation and carried on all the way to the cross. So what's the answer? How was Jesus able to accomplish these things in his life? How was he able to walk in this matter? The love of the Father for the Son was his strength. The reason that the son did all that the father showed him. Think this through in your life. In your understanding of the love that the father has for you. Have you ever truly considered that the father loves you? To the point that this was the catalyst, the reason why you should change. Why you should speak. Why you should deny yourself the love that we are told that has been manifested in and through the Son. This is something that that disciple of love, the one that hung that moniker, the disciple that Jesus loved on himself, how he saw the effects of the love of the Father on us. In 1 John 3, 1, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. John understood that the love of the Father changes us, should change us, should affect us. And that effect, that change happens from the outside in. It's not in us. It's outside of us. If. In fact, the the love of the Father is towards us. And he learned this from loving the Son, from knowing the Son, and being with the Son. Back in chapter 8, when Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders, those that had that relationship with God, he told them, if God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Verse 42. And then listen to the Apostle John again in 1 John 4, 16. He says, We have come to know and have believed that the love which God has, has for us, God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Do we know this truth as John did? Do we know this power in our lives? And you think that there isn't a cancer among you? The love of the Father has placed us, has placed us in the most exalted of positions. That of being His Son. And position comes with power. So what exactly does the love of God do for us? What should we expect, can expect from this love of the Father? Well, listen to Jesus as he was praying to his Father. He's going to do this in chapter 17, but listen to his prayer for us. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as you, as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved me, or loved them, even as you love me. Loved them, them, As you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Are these truths not shocking? When you examine yourself and know how foul you really are, how sinful you really are, does it not shock you to realize that the prayer of Christ is, is the reality that we live in if we are in him his glory is our glory the love that the father has for him he has for us and that he is in us as well christ is in us not just with us not just around us but in us we are special we are royalty Exalted members of an exalted holy family, the family of God. And God is love. But do you know that love? One way that you're going to know that you know this love is if you hate what He hates. Do you hate what God hates? Not just dislike. He doesn't just dislike things. He he hates them. Do you even know what he hates? Well, God hates the wicked. Psalm 11.5. Not just their actions, but he hates them. He doesn't condemn their actions to hell. He swiftly, justly sends them. Those that are wicked, he sends them to hell for all eternity. And Proverbs chapter 6 verses 17 through 19 tells us God hates pride. Verse 17 tells us that he hates haughty eyes. Ever since the fall of Adam, man has had haughty eyes desiring to be in the place of God, to glorify self rather than God. And this is contrary to who God is, so he hates it. And God hates a lying tongue. Proverbs 6, 17. What's a lying tongue? It's anything that's not true. It's calling wrong right. It's calling, well, it may be just what we would call a white lie. It's not that big a deal. God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. Again, Proverbs 6.17. This includes that mother that has murdered her unborn child or the doctor or social worker who has taken any hand in it. God hates the heart that devises wicked actions. Proverbs 6.18. He doesn't just mean those that make plans to commit crimes. This also means those that determine in their heart to watch, to participate in, to listen to anything that God deems wicked. These things he hates. If I went and turned on your radio right now in your car, what would be on? God hates feet that makes haste to run to evil. Again, Proverbs 6.18. This is a person who can't wait to go watch, to go do, to go participate in those things that God abhors. And God hates a false witness that breathes out lies, Proverbs 6.19. And that includes little sister Susie, who is in charge of the prayer team, who is more than willing to pass along whatever juicy little tidbits of gossip that she can. And finally, God hates a sowing of discord among brothers, Proverbs 6, 19. Don't mistake that, because there are going to be times within the church that there's going to be division. And division is sometimes necessary because of sin, but that's not what is meant here. The sowing of discord among believers can be best seen by undermining gospel unity, the gospel truth within the body. Well, how can that happen? That happens by relegating to personal opinion, that which God clearly calls sin. By telling others or saying something like, well, yeah, I know what the Bible says about vanity or fill in the blank. But. And with that but you are now sowing discord within the body. Saints, we must not be. We cannot allow ourselves to be just hearers of the word and think that that is something. We must be doers of the word. We must not shirk the commands of God and treat them as merely suggestions. If we are truly sons of God, because he has poured out his love on us, The love of the Father is sufficient reason. Hear me again. The love of the Father is sufficient reason to forsake all those things that he hates. And Christ has given us his glory. His love. And because of this truth, We know that the love that the Father loved him with is in us. Isn't that amazing? But wait, there's more. Look at verses 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world can't receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you do know him where he bides with you and will be in you. In verse 16 we're introduced to that to a person, to the person that the ESV has rendered as another advocate. Other translations have that title rendered as helper or counselor or comforter. And the reason that this is different because we have different renderings is because there's no single word in the English language that means what Jesus actually said. What he said is that he is sending another paraclete, one that will be with you forever. And that one is what the ESV tells us is the spirit of truth. Again, other versions uh, and other translations have that last bit as the Holy Spirit, or that the, he is the counselor, or is the spirit of truth. Again, the reason for the difference is that our language is limited, and can't in one word encompass the fullness that was meant in the title paraclete and the title paraclete is only used five times in all of the bible and all five times are used by john four of them in his in the gospel and once in his epistle and because of that it's really hard for translators to nail down what the full meaning of that title is and searching the old testament the hebrew is a lost cause because it's not there so who is this paraclete what's he like What's he do? Because the paraclete, the promise of the paraclete is paramount in the life of the believer. He's promised to us to be with us, and not just once or just a while, but that he will be with us and in us forever. That's verse 16. And because of that truth, because this is truth, the P in the acronym TULIP is SOUND. The perseverance of the saints. Since the Paraclete is with us forever as a gift from the Father and the Son, we can rest assured that we are secure in the love of God forever. And there are five things that we glean concerning this Paraclete from what we're told by Jesus. The first is that at this point in redemptive history, he hadn't yet fully come. Verse 17 tells us that at this point, he did not abide in these men. but He was only with them. By this, though, we can know that he's already active because he's fulfilling his ministry and letting these men know that Jesus is Lord. And later in chapter 16, Jesus tells us, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go, the helper, the paraclete, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The paraclete was with these men prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But it wasn't until after these events that he could be in them, when Christ ro- died and rose again. It was then that Christ sent the paraclete to live in these men. An event that we're told about in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse, verses 1 through 4. The second thing that we're told about this paraclete is that he has a special relationship with the disciples of Christ with us these men will know this paraclete as they know Christ do you see now why not knowing your savior is a big deal outside of not uh, outside of knowing him you will not know the father and you won't know the spirit either And this paraclete will remain with them, just as Christ himself promised that he would remain with them. He told them in verse 20, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And the ongoing job of the paraclete is told to us in chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. Jesus says, However, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak what he hears, and he will declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me by taking from me what is mine and disclosing it to you. Everything that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said that the Spirit will take what is mine and disclose it to you. The third thing we're told concerning the paraclete is that he has a unique role in the world. And that role happens both in the redeemed and the doomed. When he comes, he will convict the world in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because they don't believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world has been condemned. It's when you realize the mission of this one that Jesus calls another paraclete, that you can fully grasp the reality of the triune nature of God. The Father sending the Son. The Son sending the Spirit. And the Spirit indwelling and empowering those that the Father chose for the Son. Those that the Son died for to purchase because of the love of the Father. And did you notice that when Jesus tells these men of that coming paraclete, he says of him, another paraclete? Since there's another paraclete coming, who was the other one? Because you can't have another without a first, an additional. So who was the other paraclete? It's Jesus. In First John chapter two verse one, we read, "My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. That word there is paraclete, before the Father. And then he tells us who that advocate, that paraclete is, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And you can't obey? You have the original advocate who shed his blood for you, who lived a perfect life as proof that it is possible to obey, who has given himself for you and is standing beside his father on your behalf. And you've been given another advocate, an advocate who is with you and is in you, and you still think it's impossible to obey. Or is it just that you don't know? We must always be about reforming ourselves. Because there is no one in this whole world who has ever lied to you more than you. You must continually examine yourself. Live introspectively. Don't think that you are okay because you think that you are okay. Ask yourself, does this glorify God? Will this bring glory to him? Will this draw me closer to him? You can't go on living, thinking that the way you were when you walked in here today was right, is right. The way that others live is right. The world is proof that in most cases, it's not. And you cannot, and you will not understand the person of the Spirit if you don't recognize that he is God. He's not a feeling. He's not an emotion. He's no less God than the Father or the Son. And his office and function is of no less importance than the first paraclete. For outside of him, no one will be regenerated. No one will be reborn. No one will profess with their mouths and believe in their hearts that Jesus is Lord. And no one will understand or be convicted, of, convicted by the scriptures. And then we're told by the word of God that all sin can be forgiven. All sin with one exception. That should give us a clue as how important this second paraclete is. And this all comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. Let me set the stage, because Jesus has just, and his disciples have just left a synagogue where he healed the man with a withered hand. That caused the religious leaders to get all up in a dander because he worked on the Sabbath. And then he heads out from there, where many followed him. And within that crowd were many who were diseased, depressed, and afflicted, and we're told that he healed them all. And within that group, there were those that opposed Jesus. And they said that he was able to do this work to heal because of the power of the devil. And then in verse 31, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Is this something that we can do? To understand what this is, we need to understand what that word blasphemy means. Because Jesus was accused of blasphemy because he called God his Father. So what's blasphemy? Blasphemy is defiant irreverence. Think about those two words. Defiant. I am not going to do what you tell me to do. I'm not going to listen to you. You're not the boss of me. I will do it my way, thank you very much. And irreverence. Irreverence means to think little of. It means to talk trash about or to besmirch a person's character. It's also irreverent to bring shame upon your parents because of the way you act or dress. So what did Jesus mean by blaspheming of the Holy Spirit? Well, what had just happened? The work of God by God had been assigned to being a work of the devil. So in the most literal sense, this sin cannot be repeated after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Since he, Jesus, is no longer walking the planet in his earthly state. But people still commit the same crime by denying Christ. Do you deny him? Do you deny him by accepting a man-made version of him? You will know if this is true or not, if this matters to you or not. You're going to know this if not submitting matters to you, if not hating what God matters to you. Are you just indifferent concerning obedience to the Lord? Yeah. And then after telling the disciples that he's going to the Father, and the Father will send another paraclete, then he makes them another promise to them and to us. In verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Man, we love this kind of verse. This kind of verse, it makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside. This verse conjures up all kinds of pictures in our heads of an orphan being rescued from starvation and swept into opulence and safety. But the problem is that words that Jesus used there have more of a meaning of a slave not being left without a master than they do with a street rat. But that doesn't make us feel warm and fuzzy, though. Because as an orphan, we're free agents. We may be denied all the things in life that we deserve, But you give me those things, and you just watch. I'll be able to succeed on my own. Once I have those things, once I'm no longer an orphan, once I get all those things that I deserve, then, then, I'm going to want more. Then we demand better things, more food, an easier life. After all, we're us. But a slave without a master, that doesn't resonate within our hearts and with our minds. A slave without a master was helpless. They had no meaning, no purpose. A master provided purpose for their life, meaning for why they got out of bed every morning. They were always in service to their master. And they understood when they were elevated by that master that they were loved and greatly cared for. They didn't deserve this special treatment any more than they deserved to be purchased by this great and gracious master. And when they were given a spare set of clothes, that was a supreme gift from the master. The mindset of a slave was never for themselves, but always for their master. They were never self-centered. And I'm not sure if you've noticed something from this section of Scripture. The one with all these promises that Jesus has made to his disciples, they are all self-centered. And they are not centered on us. Read this section of Scripture. Underline how many times Jesus refers to himself, commands things, gives promises all based upon him. And then understand why we here in this room, why our lives with Christ are as anemic as they are. Because we have forgotten that we are not orphans. We were never orphans. We are slaves and have always been a slave. Before being purchased by the blood of Christ, before being redeemed at such a great price, we were slaves to sin. And all those that are not of Christ are still a slave to sin. And sin is a horrible master. It kills, it lies, it deceives, and it destroys. Look around at the slaves to sin. Those that don't know who they are, thinking that they can be a boy or a girl or a puppy or a tree. Thinking that they're doing it their way. I'm making it on my own that they are the master of their destiny. Look at those that dress themselves up and make people notice them because they are so insecure in their relationship with their master. Look at that woman who is willing to give herself to that man or to many men who are not her husband because she doesn't know that she has value in being a slave to the master. And how many of us here understand recognize and even revel in the reality that we are a slave. How many of us get out of bed early to be in service to their master, knowing that we have been redeemed by him, purchased off the auction block by his blood, and knowing that every day that we are given here is a gift from him? And knowing that with all that we do, that we are to be in service to him. How many of us here just live selfishly? I'm not going to get up. Why should I get up? To pray? To bring communion with the master? How many of us get up to an alarm clock angry because we have to go to work? Not that we get to go to work. I hate my boss, my work. That stupid computer, stupid phone system. Or how many of us piddle away our free time? I just wish there was something to do. I know. I'll cruise the Internet. Or I'll watch an inane TV show. But when you understand and realize the price that was paid to purchase you, and if you are in Christ, that's what the Bible tells us happened. Galatians 3.3 3 tells us Christ bought us with his blood and made us free from the law. It's the very same thing that Acts 20.28 20, says. The very same thing that Acts 17, 11, 7, 11, 7, 11 says. And 1 Corinthians 6.20 tells us that we have been purchased with a great price. And Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter 1.18. So which is it? Which did Jesus mean here? Orphan or slave? Well, you're lobbying for orphan. You're rigging elections for it to be orphan. But the important, unfortunate truth is that it's slave. Here, John 15, 15. He says, Jesus says, no longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made to known to you. The thing that's unfortunate is not that we are slaves. This was the meaning behind him telling us that because he is going to the father, he will ask the father and the father will send another paraclete and that he won't leave us because, uh, but will return to us. That's not the unfortunate thing. The unfortunate thing is that when we read verse 15 of chapter 15 when we're called friends we no longer are called slaves we're friends sons we are not grateful for this elevation this privilege this honor and now we act more like veruca salt than a good and faithful servant don't know who veruca salt is She's that spoiled, nasty, mean-spirited, completely self-absorbed brat in Willy Wonka who wanted it all, and I want it now. But listen to the master of the slaves that he's going to purchase with his own blood, the one that he just gave this sweet promise that he will not leave you. Look at verses 19 and 20. In a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. And on that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Did you hear what this one, the great I am, who is going away? And never let us forget the path that he has to take to go away, the price that he paid every day of his life, up to that last moment of his life to purchase you. A life of selflessness, a service to his Father, a life of love for the Father manifested through love of humans and manifested through acts of faith. But did you catch what this I am God, who loves you and loves you to the end, what he just promised to you? He tells them a mystery that we understand this side of the cross, they didn't understand or they couldn't understand it when he says, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Well, when did he mean? Was this promise that he would rise from the dead and they would see him after he did? Was that the promise? That meant what it meant? Well, it it included that day. But it also included another day as well, another day as well, one that's so marvelous in his promise and reality, that it was a catalyst for John to later pen these verses. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because he shall, we will, shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's 1 John 3, 1 through 3. We need to be clear in understanding what Jesus meant back in verse 18 when he tells these men that they will not leave them as orphans, that he will come to them. What day is he speaking of there? When did he mean when he told them that he would come to them? Was he speaking of his second coming? That final day when he's returned, when he gathers together all of his children, both dead and alive, before the dreaded day of judgment? Or was he speaking of him coming back from the dead on the third day after his murder? Or is there another day that he's thinking of? Well, from out of our text today, we're given clues as to what day he meant. And what we're to understand is that the answer to the question, which day he meant is, yes, all of them. In verse 20, we're told that on that day that they would know that he is in the Father and that they are in him and that he is in them. And that day is a specific day. And it speaks directly to the third day, the day of his resurrection. The day that he would manifest himself to them in his eternal resurrected eternal body. On that day, they will know that he is in the Father. And in verses 16 and 17, we're told of the second meaning of this day, when he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you, the Spirit of truth, the one that the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you do know him, for he abides with you and will be in you. On that day, the other paraclete comes, the one that, just like the original paraclete, the world can't have or access. But for the saint, for the believer, the redeemed, That day will be the day that the second paraclete will be with them and in them forever. That is the day of your salvation. A specific day, an individual day that happened to each one of us individually. But there's another day that is meant by Jesus coming once again. And this was the catalyst. That day was the catalyst of this entire section of scripture. The day that he spoke of back in verses 2 and 3. When he said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that i go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also be. Once again, we're given an understanding why we must know the one that is the way, the truth, and the life. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And then he ends this section of scripture telling us what he means by life, what he meant by life, because all men have life. Would you agree that you guys are all alive right now? But not all men really live. What is it that he meant when he said that he is the life? This seems to be the theme from the book of John. He began the gospel with this reality in John chapter one, verse four. He said, in him was life and, the, and he was the life was the light of men. Chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. And then in chapter 10, we're told more of this life, what he meant by it when he was speaking once again of being the way to the Father, when he says that he is the gate to the sheepfold. In verse 10, he tells them, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then in this chapter, he tells us that he is life, verse 6. And there he gives us a clue as to what he means by life. He tells us that no one comes to the Father except through him. So how do we know if we're truly alive? What is the litmus test for this new life that is found in Christ? That is the opposite of the life that the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy gives that is found only in the Father. That evidence, the proof, is found in verse 21. You might want to underline it. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. Jesus begins this statement concerning life with that term, whoever, once again. The same term that he used back in verse 12 when he said, whoever believes in me will do the same works that I do. And he used the same term in chapter 6, verse 35. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow, riv- uh, will flow rivers of living water. That's John 7, 38. In John eleven twenty-five. 25, whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall, n- he shall live. And whoever believes in me will, remain in, will not remain in darkness. John 12, 46. This whoever whoever that is that Jesus is referring to, is the recipient of these promises. They won't die. They will not remain in darkness. They will never spiritually thirst ever again. And out of their heart will flow living water that will manifest manifest itself in greater works accomplished through and in Christ, which is the ministry of reconciliation. And you will know that you're in this group of whoever people through having the commands of Christ. And not just having them, but by obeying them. So what are the commands of Christ? Well, they're all summed up in the Gospel of John. John 13, 34 through 35. A new command I give you, love one another as, you, as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciple if you love one another. Here in this command, we are to see the importance of this church, not just the Catholic church, and no, I'm not speaking of the Roman Catholic church, but the universal, true, and everlasting church. Jesus was speaking about you loving your church, the people that you have covenanted with, the people that were specifically chosen, predestined, preordained to be covenant members of this body. We are to pour into them, to love them, to esteem them, And by this the world will know that you're his. And then John chapter 14 verse 11. He says believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Herein is the clarion called repent and confess. To believe the unbelievable. To acknowledge that the Father is in the Son and the Son who is the original paraclete is in the Father. And the effect of of obedience, in believing that He is in the Father, and the Father is in Him, is given to us in verses twelve through fourteen. When He says, "Whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do," and then He summarizes this with the same promise and truth that He ends our verses with today: "If you love Me, you will keep My commands." I understand very much that you dislike that I keep bringing these truths up. That you must obey your master. That you are to esteem this body more than others. That you are to do the work of evangelist, imploring people to be reconciled to Christ. And there's two possible reasons why you hate this. The first is that you're truly not regenerate. You're a poser. You're a spiritual person. And you desire to think that you're saved. You enjoy doing the church thing because deep down it makes you feel like you're a really good person. But in reality, when push comes to shove, you really hate that God requires this of you. Why must I be doing the work of an evangelist? Why must I implore others to be reconciled to Christ? Why can't I just work in the kids' wing or clean the bathrooms? Or actually, why can't I just do up, show up and do nothing? and just be churched. Well, perhaps I'm just a deacon. That's what I'm called to do. Not an evangelist. Have you ever thought of that, David? Have you ever considered, though, that the first Christian to be martyred after Christ himself was a deacon? Not an evangelist by trade, but a deacon, and an, not an elder. It was Stephen who boldly proclaimed the gospel, and he was pleading, He was pleading to the people that would kill him. Be reconciled to Christ, Acts chapter 7. Perhaps you just hate God. Perhaps your inability to call homosexuals just that is evidence of this truth. Perhaps your desire just to let others be whatever they desire is proof that you hate God. Perhaps you're not seeing the slaughter of innocent lives as being murder because you think that having sex outside of marriage is really no big deal. And you surely wouldn't want to be saddled with the inconvenience of the effects of disobeying the commands of God. Perhaps that is why you don't see that the woman that murders that child is just that, a murderer. And perhaps... Your heartburn over being required to submit and obey to your master is proof that you actually hate God. Perhaps that is why you can so easily not hate the things that he hates. God was never shy in telling the truth of those that won't obey him. He describes them for us in Romans chapter 1 those that hate him, those that has given he has given over to a reprobate mind, those who are unwilling and unable to obey this master and commander. This is the first reason that you might hate that I keep bringing these things up. And the second reason is, there is no second reason. Here, verse 21 again, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and reveal myself to him. Well, do you have his commands? Have you not heard them? Have you not, have you not heard them given to you in these verses? That's the first thing that we're told must happen, to be of him. And then the second thing that those that have them is, is that you do them. And it is they Those that do them, that love Christ, and no other. So what? So maybe I don't love Christ. Big deal, as my grandfather used to say. And just like my grandfather found out on the day that he entered into eternity, it is a big deal. Those that love Christ are those that the Father loves. And it is these that Jesus loves. These are the ones that he died for, that he redeemed, that he loves and loves to the end. And to these he once again promises that he will come back. And on that day, he will reveal himself to them. And they will see him. And they will be like him. And this is their blessed hope. Is this you? Have you been redeemed? Has the paraclete come alongside of you? And allowed you to see the reality of the majesty of God and the putrid sin that is you. Have you repented, confessed with your mouth, and believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord? Have you obeyed by submitting to to baptism, obeying the covenant, and by covenanting with His church? If you haven't, then I implore you be reconciled to God. He alone is holy. He alone is worthy of praise. He alone is life. And outside of him, you will face trials and tribulations here in this world. You will be frustrated, angry, and depressed. You will never be satisfied when, in, or with anything. You will try and find meaning in your life. You will make your job, your family, yourself, your hobby, your God. But at the end of the day, In the still of the night, you know that they don't satisfy, that they're fleeting and dying, which is why you can't stand quiet, why you must occupy every waking moment with noise, why you drink yourself to sleep every night, why you medicate yourself to sleep, because you know, you know that no matter how bad things get here, you know that they are nothing in comparison to that eternal wrath that awaits you the moment that you enter in e- into eternity. You had better live it up now, because this truly is your best life now. But if this is not you, if you've been redeemed, been bought with at a great price, had the blood of the Lamb atone for you, then you will have no heartburn over the fact that you are, in fact, a slave. Because you're a slave to a wonderful, awesome, and great master that requires that you obey. And saints, never mistake the sinful self that still surrounds the real you, that bristles once in a while at the commands to obey. Never mistake that for being unregenerate. Because we are not home yet. We're still being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are still entombed in these bodies of death that wages war against our eternal, glorious souls that contain both the original paraclete and the other paraclete. And because we are loved by the Father and the Son, Because he has asked his father, and his father has sent the other paraclete who is beside us and in us. Because he, the original paraclete, has gone and prepared a place for us. And one day will take us home to be with the father. The day that we'll finally be set free from these bodies of death. And on that day, on that day, this is a promise. This is not fiction. This is fact. On that day, we will finally... Fully experience and know. And we will be in the presence of the triune God. And because of these truths, we must wage war against our flesh. And the sin that so easily besets us. And we do this by obeying. Don't leave here unchanged. Think. Examine yourself. Make sure that the paraclete is in you and with you and loving each other, esteeming one another, praying for one another and counting others above yourselves. This is the internal obedience that's required. The external obedience, the one that we do outside of this body, that's in the fulfilling of the ministry of reconciliation, the one that we've all been given. It's in proclaiming Christ. And if you do these two things, when you do these two things, you will see that you will be finally killing sin. And you will have victory over those sins that so easily beset you. You will find that when you esteem others, live in service to others, that you will no longer be consumed by your own little petty problems. When you kill those things that God hates in your life, that's when you will be edifying others within this body. Let me explain this to you once more. Your sin, your personal sin, that one that you do when you think that you're away from everybody, when you think that is not a big deal, that sin affects every one of us here. Do you get that? But when you kill that sin, you're providing an example for the rest of this body to follow as you follow your Savior. It is then that you will be walking in obedience, then that you will be making strides in your sanctification, and it is then that this other paraclete, the one that Jesus has gone to the Father to request be sent to us, it is that one that is in us, it is then that we will know, that we will finally know The one that saved us.